for November 23rd, 2009. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 73. Hello Kitty Theme Park. to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. From the very leftist part of the left coast, I am your host, Mithra Ma- Actually, that's not true. Did you know that Reno is west of Los Angeles? Huh. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Uh, the world is upside down. It's, uh, is that it's- before or after 2012? Well, that's a, that's a good point. Yeah, buy property in Arizona because yeah. it will be oceanfront somewhere in the next 15,000 years. Uh, it's going to be called, uh, what, Gusberg? <laughs> Is that what it's going to be called? Otisburg, Otisburg. Otisburg, right. Yeah. Yeah. It's a little bitty place. From, uh, from wherever the hell I'm podcasting from, I'm your host, Matthew Rather, here uh, with the panel to overthink many, many things. We have a, a packed agenda tonight, so let's get right to the uh, opening question, pegged to the opening of New Moon, a record-breaking... Blinky, do you have the number? Uh, it, I think it was like 140-something. The, Did they the make weekend. it? Are you serious? But the record... Are you serious? Yeah, no, it was, it was insane. That's not a record for a weekend, but it was a record for a Friday, right? 140.7 million, says IMDb. And it, but uh, but I, th- I think it may have been a, a, a record for like just a three day opening because like a lot of the big movies open on like a Wednesday and this well, one that's didn't. a good then. point. Yeah, a holiday, a non holiday weekend. Um, but it was the biggest Friday. It was the biggest first day, opening day. I think in the history of movies. I'll check on that as we go. But. You know, this phenomenon, and maybe we'll talk about it a little later, uh, leads to the question of the week, which is this. What is your favorite romance involving a, uh, uh, a person who is undead? Well, you shouldn't say a person. An undead creature. What is your favorite romance uh, involving an undead creature? Displacing our usual first podcaster, Peter Fenzel, in the last namestakes is... <laughs> <laughs> Girl, is Matthew Blinky. How are you? I'm doing just great. Uh, you know, one day we're going to have to go alphabetical by by first name. Oh, wait, no, I would actually be first before Pete. Alphabetical by first name, too. Yeah. There's no way that I won't be, I won't be first before you, Pete. No, well, John, um, would, John would be before you, but uh, but here you are now. I'd say I'd say my most touching uh, romance is Miller time. Someone just cracked a someone just cracked a can of domestic beer. I can hear it. Oh, it, but it's A and W domestic, so uh, <laughs> you know who that is. Anyway, I don't want to interrupt. I gotta build my uh, build my ziggurat of diet root beer cans. <laughs> while, while, I think- I'm tr- I, I'm, really I'm drinking away my sorrows and not being first. The changing what? geography. I've learned so much about your apartment from listening to the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> And That's and it's idea. very a state of club because wasn't it just last week that you were bragging how like it's okay to bring a girl over now because like you fixed the, the 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 strange sort of uh, close encounters of the third kind esque um, models that you had built with foodstuffs. 
Yeah, this is true. I have a new recycling bin. <laughs> so, <Yeah. laughs> so I'm able to recycle things that I previously had hoarded. Uh, and as such, I'm moving forward. But this is just me drinking away my sorrows and not being first in the alphabet. So I should not co-opt your uh, answering of the fine question, which I look forward to answering myself. Yeah. Well, you know what? I mean, I, I think as touchy as the whole Twilight Saga is to me, so, sorry, Saga is to me. And by the, by the way, someone remind me later to discuss whether Twilight, the books really constitute a saga and the, and the real like Icelandic sense of the term. Um, but I, I would say uh, it's it's the mummy, and I'm I'm more familiar with the you know the, the modern the 1999 Brendan Fraser mummy, but I believe it's a similar story in the original that uh, the the priest uh, is in love with the uh, the the princess right is the the Emotep. the wife right Emotep is in love with the the wife of the the pharaoh and. Um, they somebody finds out about their affair, and she, I believe she has to kill herself. And so he, you know, because he's a priest and he has access to these sort of dark uh, demonic secrets, he wants to resurrect her from the dead. But before he can do this, he himself is uh, caught and mummified. And after like two thousand years of what is presumably uh, nonstop anguish, you know, in some sort of like <laughs> quasi dead state, he is resurrected, and the first thing he wants is to bring her back, like. The, the mummy's plan, he does want to conquer the earth, he does want to enslave the human wa- race, but really his like, first priority and his only priority till it's done is to get his girlfriend back. And I think that like, it's so touching that like, not only did he love her during life, but like, thousands of years of torment have pretty much not changed that at all. Mm-hmm. And I, I hope that one day I will care about somebody so much that after 2,000 years of being eaten by uh, computer-generated beetles... I will still, uh, you know, want her back. The first thing that happens after I rip somebody's eyes out and use them in my own skull. <laughs> anyway, that's me. Fantastic. Now, Pete, now <laughs> I hear you itching, antsy, ready to go. Now it's your turn. Uh, all right, all right, all right. I got I to gotta ask the panel for a call and a technicality, which may cause me to take up two answers. Um, <laughs> no, 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 don't. Pete, there's, okay. there's no technicality on the first question. Your, your first instinct is correct. Just go for it. Well, okay. Here's the question. Is, uh, uh, to which I want to say no, but. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So question. Is the Highlander undead? No, it's, he's immortal. <laughs> no, no, no. Okay. He's, un- he's undead. That counts as your answer. Go for it. Go for it. Don't, don't, don't hesitate. <laughs> just go. Just go. Just get into it. Go. I, I, answer I, I, the I, I, question. I, 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 Whoa, somebody is having a little bit of the pep pills today. So excited. So that, excited. that guy better have a great answer. When we get to John, he better have a fantastic answer. That's okay. all I can say. So I, I, I was going to say that my favorite ro- undead romance is the three-way sort of love triangle between Meryl Streep, Goldie Hawn, and Bruce Willis in the wonderful movie Death Becomes Her, um, which I think tells you a little bit about my rather dysfunctional relationship with love. Uh, but uh, it's just a very charming movie. If you haven't seen but it – ladies, don't, uh, don't worry. The pyramid's been cleaned up. <laughs> Pete's apartment That's is true. a very safe place to go. Yeah, well, women love Meryl Streep. I mean, this is pretty much all the case. They love Meryl Streep. Um, but yeah, it's about people who take an anti-aging treatment and end up being impervious to harm and get involved in like romantic struggles that cause them to do incredible bodily harm to each other. Um, the famous money shot is uh, Goldie Hawn with a hole through her stomach. Um, that they use a lot of corny special effects. That she she tries so hard to be beautiful and young, but she ends up like horribly disfigured. 
Um, and, and it's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful, charming movie. But it's not a touching romance, which is why I was thinking, well, you know, the Highlander, he died and he came back and he walks the earth kind of shambling around. And he's got the wonderful romantic song about who, you know, who wants to live forever when love must die, um, which anybody can sing if they can go up the ladder that far, which I, I can't, but I can do my best. Who sings that song? Queen. Wait. Queen does all no the Highlander way. music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Highlander? That is, wow. Queen has a whole album of Highlander music called A Kind of Magic, um, which is, uh, includes the song It's a Kind of Magic, the song Princes of the Universe. Here we are, we're the princes of the universe. Here we belong. It's, like, it's, it's a lot like um, uh, We Don't Need Another Hero, that Tina Turner song from Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, yeah. where it's like a normal song for like three quarters of the way through the song, and then there's like a couple of lines that indicate it's from like a very specific science fiction universe. <laughs> and so if you, if you don't know the context... Like, you know how Tina goes, like, we don't need another hero. We don't need another way home. It could be about, anything. It could be about like, beyond. race relations in America, you know? And then it goes, and then, all we want is life she... beyond the Thunderdome. Thunder like, she kind of, like, slides it in there. You're like, whoa, wait, where, where did that come from? <laughs> exactly, exactly. And she, like, says it sort of sotto voce. She tries to, like, shove it in there without anybody noticing that the Thunderdome Although is for, like, wrong. a long time, I, I had heard that song and didn't realize it was from a movie, and I just kind of assumed that, like, I wasn't smart enough or literate enough to understand what she was trying to tell me. <laughs> I, well, I, the like, song I is kind of being, I never thought she was being sotto voce, though. I thought she was just overcome with emotion at, at having to recollect <laughs> Thunderdome, <laughs> that, that place of so much suffering. Well, it definitely, I definitely group it amongst, although she was in the movies, so this is awkward, but I group it amongst the songs, the pop songs at the end of movies that were written by uh, singers or artists who were relayed the events of the movie by a third party, but had not seen it themselves, um, such as like the Bobby Brown uh, Ghostbuster song, where he like, or the T- MC Hammer, T- or it's not MC Hammer, but the T-U-R-T-L-E Power song, um, where it's like, they get Wait, most the, of the events. Or the, uh, the Adams Family rap. Exactly. That's MC Hammer. The Adam, they do Adam what they want to do. Say what they want to say. That's how they want to dance. Play, play how they want to play. Or Bon Jovi's. Yeah. Or Bon Jovi's "Blaze of Glory" from Young Guns Two. Yeah. Well, then, my yeah. favorite Bon Jovi instance is uh, "Always." I've told you guys this story, right? Um, the Bon Jovi song "Always" was commissioned for the movie "Romeo Is Bleeding" because the first line of it is "Romeo is bleeding, but you can't see his blood. It's nothing but some feelings." But then they actually saw Romeo is bleeding, in which case Romeo like is literally bleeding for most of the movie. It's like about a crazy killer lady, right. and it was such like a horrible exploitative like like sex violence fest that Bon Jovi withdrew their song and saved it for their best of album, uh, "Crossroad." Which really. Is yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's sort of like if somebody made, like, the revenge of the Sith, like, the Sith aren't actually real. And then someone's like, no, the Sith, the Sith are real. They're in this movie. They're actually getting revenge. It's like, oh, well, <laughs> screw you guys. <laughs> Why didn't someone tell me this? Anyway, I've, I've, I've consumed too much. I would say that when it comes to love over the centuries, I got to go with the Highlander and the various women he's with. Um, but when it comes to actual, like, you know, zombified bodies shambling through relationships. I got to go with Death Becomes Her. But wait, that, is there? Wait, 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 hold it. Follow. Is there one particular romance in the Highlander that, even though you know she's gone, the the romance sort of perseveres? Uh, you know, beyond um, the. 
I mean, there, there is. There's multiple of them because they bring them up in random episodes, right? It'll be like, oh, the series too. The Highlander the series right. is a lot more romantic than Highlander the movies, generally speaking, because it, it's playing for more of a European audience, I think. Um, and it's sort of like it has sex scenes in the European version of the show. It doesn't have them in the American version of the show. Uh, it's, really? it's it's produced with it's produced by like a can, French Canadian production company, like in Europe, using like British actors. Um, it's like a very strange like confluence of international film production. Um, although I'm sure that that I'm actually technically wrong in certain degrees there, and, and that that's only partially true because. But these things are these operations are so global. But yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean I, I think that well, there's the Raven, right? The Raven is the spinoff where they take one of the characters from the Highlander who's supposed to have had an extended romantic relationship with uh, Duncan McLeod and make her own, give her her own show. But I think that that was kind of forced. But there are a lot of the times when it'd be like, oh yeah, spin-off. we have there a love a gender flip spinoff of the Highlander. There was. There was a She-Ra of Highlander. And she was called the Yeah, Raven. there's a She-Ra of Highlander, exactly. Yeah, she was a contemporary of the beginning of Charmed, I think. Uh, and that whole era. Like sort of the, the sort of like the strangest scion of Buffy. Um, being like, yeah, you know what, you know what women would love to watch? Like Highlander. <laughs> let's just make it let's put a chick in uh, spandex. And yeah, you can, uh, you can and file that away I'm in the dark. Sure those, angel those, file. those shows were still for us, Pete. Oh, you you think? I guess the so. Amount of, I the know. amount of like almost nudity pretty much ensures that we were the target audience for that. <laughs> right, so yeah. you saying By that there was anyone? a Melissa? Yeah. Anyway, go ahead. Hey, wait. Who was that? That was uh, that was Josh McNeil. He's next in line <laughs> to answer the question. <laughs> what a coincidence. Um, uh, my answer for the question there there are a lot of them. Uh, Bernie and the Beach Bunny from Weekend at Bernie's is a good one. Um, yes. There are a couple others, but. Uh, I think ultimately I've got to go with uh, actually the undeadlove.com, which is the number one dating site for gothic people and admirers, uh, which I urge all of you to check out right now. Uh, because you never know, your dark prince with a mohawk or your corseted princess could be just a click away. Is that, I'm assuming you're quoting from Undeadlove.com is not a, uh, yeah, is not a, uh, affiliated with overthinking it. Though I can, I can oh, understand why. Yeah, I know. Yet. <laughs> yeah, we're going to buy them. Yeah, we're going to, we're going to, yeah, a hostile takeover. <laughs> as soon as they make their IPO, we move in. No, I, I think actually, uh, the, uh, the one of the more interesting pairings like that is uh, is actually Mina Murray and Alan Quatermain from the uh, League of Extraordinary Gentlemen series, uh, which is sort of a, a a a love that spans a century and sees some really interesting things over the course of it. Uh, and it's two different kinds of immortals hooking up, which I don't think you see very often. Uh, and they don't have really don't really don't get into the technical details of it, but it seems to be working for them. Oh. I have to sign are- up. I can't see my matches on undeadlove.com without seeing <laughs> That's too bad. By the way, Josh, you're specifically referring to, to the, the turn the relationship takes in the Black Dossier, right? Well, no, I mean, it, it starts, I think, in the first one. And then, I mean, it, it sort oh, of yeah, I guess, I guess continues there is throughout. A sub-level of more. Yeah, you're right. Um, um, yeah, they're but it's just a cute couple, I guess. Well, no, they're they're not at all. I mean, like the the cute couples that you go with are like Spike and Drusilla from Buffy. Like those, you know, that's like a really that's a nice uh, sort of Sid and Nancy couple. But the in terms of sort of like actually using their immortality to get something done other than like pining for something, uh, I feel like uh, Quarterman and Murray is a pretty good pair. 
Excellent. Yeah, they do stop the French from taking over the world or something. Yeah, well, I mean, and you got to that's a love that uh saved us from a lot of cheese. <laughs> yeah, exactly. One man who I know is a fan of cheese is John Parrish, who's on the horn from uh uh Cambridge, Somerville, Massachusetts. What up? What up? What up? All right. So, is that like your tagline cuz you start you always start that way? I, I try to, except when I cut in and, and either add finance values for an opening box office weekend or when I yell at Pete to start talking faster. I guess so. <laughs> uh, and Pete, the reason I was yelling at you is because, the, in my mind anyway, the point of the question thing isn't to try and defend it with technicalities, but to take an indefensible position and back it up with, with spurious reasoning, which I'm about to do, because my, okay. favorite, uh, my favorite undead romantic couple is Scott Summers and Jean Grey from X-Men. Because Jean Grey, oh, having come back from the dead as many times as she has, is clearly undead. Clearly. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely, presumably, like, I don't think anyone's going to argue with you. You're referring to the comic book and not the movie series, right? Uh, I don't know. Yeah, I never saw the third one, so... The, the movies go in that direction, isn't it? Didn't well, she die? Give away X-Men 3 spoilers. She comes back, but then she promptly, uh, uh, I hesitate to say, just because I don't like talking about X3 in general, but um, <laughs> yeah, the comic book is probably more, more uh, well, fruitful for the conversation. I mean, you have to remember, for most of its life, it's a long-distance relationship, because he's out there fighting crime, and she's buried under the Long Island Sound, right? Because <laughs> like, <laughs> there's right. no retconning. Yeah, they're like basically during the entire Phoenix continuity, the act, this, the actual Jean Grey is just like deep beneath the Long Island Sound in like comic book retro like uh, uh, continuity slumber, um, sort of hibernating until I, they can bring her back out again. I do love. I, I always found that very interesting how Marvel uh, uses very real and specific places in our world, and DC sort of invents a fictional geography. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like how the how the X Mansion or whatever the heck is in Westchester, but like um, right. you know, but like the Green Lantern has like Coast City or whatever it is. And Batman, the, yeah. like Batman is yeah. in Gotham. Right, right, right. right. I've actually, I've actually seen like a map online of uh, like various landmarks in Manhattan, fictional landmarks in Manhattan for the Marvel universe, like where the Baxter Building is, uh, and like you know where uh, you know Daredevil's law firm is located. You know because these things are very specifically located in the in the books. Now, for people with more comic book knowledge than me, does that does that give DC more license to do planet changing events? Like I know when when Superman came back from the dead, there was that thing where Coast uh, Coast City was destroyed, and that was sort of what gave Green Lantern the impetus to become this galaxy destroying villain called Parallax, I think. And there was in the Zero yes. Hour series, but um, he was the living does, embodiment of the measurement of distance based on uh, differing like two dimensional interpretations of on a rotating body, right? No, it's <laughs> just a word that's <laughs> Okay. <laughs> and he was right. powered he was powered by yellow. But, but my but my question is does does Marvel not do that as much because they can't say oh, you know, Magneto has destroyed Denver and you know 10 million people are dead because I don't I don't you know, think Marvel does any sort of uh, galactic pl- I'm probably wrong about this cuz you got the Silver Surfer and everything. But I always feel like like DC has more stories sort of involving, like, what's going on at the other side of the galaxy? And Marvel is more like, you know, um, tends to be a little less um, universe-shaking in its, in its uh, events. But I'm not, I'm not the... I'm, don't 
hold me responsible well, for that I, quote. I, I would say I would say to that, like for Marvel, they tend to divide the plot lines that go crazy and intergalactic from the plot lines that are domestic. But I mean, you can't. I mean, the, the Phoenix Saga, the Shi'ar Empire. You even got the crazy. I mean, Hulk. Even like the the World yeah. War Hulk or whatever. He comes back from another planet. No, you're, no, you're, you're right. And I was I was forgetting the whole Infinity Wars, which I actually like yeah. read when I was like a kid, which is where like yeah. you know like everyone is like dragged out to outer space to fight Thanos, who has like a gauntlet of power, right? Am I correct yeah, about the, this? Yeah, he's trying. He's trying to get the jewels and the Infinity Gauntlet and all that stuff. Oh, yeah, okay. yeah. And you got like Captain Marvel, as distinct from Captain Marvel and Shazam, which is all hilarious. I, I mean, I think that a lot of it has to do with like them trying to reinvent themselves. I don't know. Like some of their interstellar villains are really stupid. Um, like, like uh, I remember one of my <laughs> friends who worked for uh, Marvel for a little while um, and, and was asked in her interview to work for Marvel, like, who do you think is like the sort of worst Marvel character? Um, and she said, uh, Ego the Living Planet, uh, who is a, a floating planet with a giant mustache, <laughs> who um, is like a Thor villain, sort of. And like Ego, he has a giant like old man mustache like <laughs> for his face. He's like, he like looks like a planet with a face. And if you land on him, like he will spawn like superpowered uh, clones of people to fight you. And I think like Galactus defeats him by tying a bunch of rockets to his ass and like shooting him out into the galaxy or something like that. Um, yeah, that's but yeah, spiky it's, it's <laughs> I mean, look up, look up Ego the Living Planet and see if you can find a picture of him because I think it really embodies Marvel's galactic strategy, which is like it's pretty stupid. <laughs> like it, Marvel's galactic strategy is so much stupider than Marvel's domestic strategy that like um, people will often discount it as being non-existent. With I mean, like yeah. just think of Galactus in his purple helmet. He's so much sillier than like you know. I mean, I guess not than Mysterio, but you know than than so many other comic book villains. There's like they just can't contain. Once they get outside of Earth, they can no longer stop going off into DC Crazy Town. But um, I think I think DCs are pretty crazy too. Like they're was it Darkseid is not exactly like a really particularly like fear inducing character. I think the the problem is most of them were made up in the sixties. Yeah, I guess that's really at the this issue. point <laughs> sort of dated. Um, there's very little from the sixties that scares us anymore, except like mm. pants. <laughs> but John, to your point, right. I think Don um, Draper would would disagree with you. But go on. That's true. That's true. Okay, late sixties. Um, uh, to your point, the, the the whole like destruction thing. The one thing I've always wanted to see the series of like the insurance adjusters in the um, in the Marvel universe. Oh, you mean uh, like, damage the, control? Is that their name? No, 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 no. Like actually, like the guy who works for like Allstate, you know, renters insurance, and has to go. <laughs> no, no, no. And, like there, there was. There, there is, or at least there was in the '80s, a company in in the Marvel Comics universe called, I believe, Damage Control that were specialty, you know, superhero insurance providers. Like they ins- insured the, buildings the against themselves. They insured companies against damage from from super villain assaults and things like that. Sorry, Pete, go ahead. I was just say I want to watch Nick Fury, Agent of Allstate. I think like that would be good. <laughs> Does he still have the eye patch? <laughs> You're in good hands with Nick Fury. <laughs> I, uh, all right. <laughs> it's, it's by the way, I just, we had I just want to throw out that that the recent um, Marvel Civil War series, you know, the big sort of uh, universe-spanning event uh, that went down a couple of years ago, uh, is kicked off by a, a reality show that they're filming in Stanford, Connecticut. That ends in tragedy, and I just—I don't know. I just, as a Connecticut native, I always thought it was—it was, it was kind of cool that Stanford, Connecticut, gets this little shout out in comic book history. 
Nice. Mm. All right. Uh, <laughs> mine, I, I nearly misheard the question and gave you my favorite undead bromance. <laughs> which at the moment is uh, between the two vampire brothers in uh, in the Vampire Diaries on the CW because we I think you got to go with with Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt an interview with a vampire right I guess that's, so. that's yeah, a vampire right. romance <laughs> anyway it continue. it's true uh, but I'm going to say that my favorite undead romance is the romance between Frankenstein and the little girl who he throws into the river. Uh, in the in the flower picking scene, it's a short lived romance, but gets uh, gets right to the point that people in different ontological statuses should not be dating one another. So that is the panel, uh, and we are moving on. So, oh, what doesn't it say more? Don't mess with children and or throw them in rivers. <laughs> I like how it's an and or an or. Like, you know, it's a choice or you can do both. Right. <laughs> uh, yeah, whether whether you take that as, you know, what kind of conjunction you take it as. Um, look, I, uh, I, I want to talk about New Moon a little bit. I have not seen New Moon. Has any of us seen New Moon? Didn't think so. So this brings something up that Belinky... Uh, uh, that Belinky brought up before we started recording, which is this. Isn't this a one-quadrant movie? Right, well, uh, well, why like, don't you explain the quadrant thing for, for those of us who aren't up on the terminology? Done that? Haven't we done that on this podcast before? Well, no, here's, let's, here's the let's idea. Let's assume that not everyone has heard every podcast. Not everyone on that's a member of the Overthinking It site has heard every podcast. Well, if you want to hear every podcast, you can visit overthinkingit.com slash podcast, and you'll be taken to every episode of every Overthinking It podcast, including this one, These Effing Teenagers, which is about Gossip Girl and Glee. And uh, you can go back farther in the archive than you can on iTunes. And if you hear anything on those shows that you want to respond to, you can email us at podcast at overthinkingit.com or call the voicemail, which is 20EATLOG01. That's 203-285-6401. Pausing only to do the business of thanking Sean for his recent generous donation, his second donation, in fact, to the uh, to the podcast. Thank you. You help keep us on the air. And if anyone else Thank wants you, to Sean. donate, there's a little uh, there's a little button in the sidebar on overthinkingit.com that you can go to. Here's what the quadrants are. You imagine that um, uh, that the audience is split into demographic groups. So you split by gender, and then you split by age. At I think twenty five, twenty five. Is it twenty? Yeah, something like that. No, I think it's twenty five okay. or twenty four or something like that, right? Like, what, so like what's, everyone who's older than twenty five is all lumped together. Uh, yeah, it's it's like old men, young men, and then old women, old women, and young women, right? Um, yeah, I, mean, I, I just don't want that to be the number for very personal reasons. <laughs> There's a lot of, of numbers that we don't want it to be that are that are the case. So, mm-hmm. um, and I I apologize. I'm actually looking this up right now just to confirm. The official um, is, the is there like an official way that it's done, or is it sort of like more Hollywood? You know, I, I don't know if it's been codified in anything. Um, let's see, young and old, male and female. Uh, I guess that's what a four. Young and old is sort of left up to the to the uh, executive's discretion to define. Um, I hope so. Well, uh, I guess it's young enough. We'll I mean, have to find out. On, I mean, you know, there's there's a line, and I mean, the point at which you you draw it is arbitrary. But there's a line between between young and old, and and depending on yeah yeah you know depending yeah on no twenty five. I, I just confirmed it on uh, 
uh, a website called uh, The Oldest Living Digital Marketer Tells All, who sets it at 25. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, that's funny. Yeah, I know that's that makes okay. sad. That's a, that's so the, the idea is that ideally you want a movie that hits more than one quadrant. If you only have one quadrant, you're sort of like a, uh, you're, you're in the hole before you begin in terms of like trying yeah. to build up. Uh, excitement for your movie that you want a movie like like superhero movies are pretty good right because you know men and women both like superhero movies well here's um, the thing the trick to the four quadrants is that the quadrants don't all behave the same way so and the toughest quadrant to get generally speaking is the is the young male quadrant because young males don't watch movies that are intended for anybody else so if you have a movie that's designed for adult women a fair amount of adult men will go see it because they're married to adult women or they hang out with adult women or they want to like be having the nookie nook with adult women um so they'll go see the movie like i'll go see atonement right because i'm an adult and i had a woman want to see atonement and hanging out with me so i'll go see it um if i'm a young woman uh i mean i'm gonna go see some chick flicks but i'm also gonna go see what the boys are seeing because i'm not i don't think that guy movies are gross or bad or like actively horrible you know like i might not yeah, see well, dark, like, dark Man 3 women are not like yeah like young women are not against transformers yeah you know i mean like, the megan been, fox yeah. stuff is not for them but yeah yeah so that's I actually mean, the plot of transformers 3 is, is women is being what? against Transformers? <laughs> are are no, those the because, Fallen referred to in Revenge of the Fallen? Exactly. I mean, it's a widespread phenomenon across culture. One of the places where it's most obvious is in news anchors, where male news anchors test better with women than female news anchors do, but female but like a, a small margin. And then on men's side, men score much higher than women do. So like you can get the women. The women are willing to tolerate listen, watching men, listening to men, like doing all that stuff, but the dudes are not going to do it, especially the young ones, because they don't care. So the trick to go a four-quadrant movie is, like, do a movie, like, that's sort of four young men that also sort of, like, spreads out across the rest of the spectrum, right? Is like, That's sort of the conventional wisdom for a four-quadrant movie, I think, when you talk, think about summer blockbusters. They're, like, action movies, right? Or, like, big tentpole pictures. Um, yeah. But, you know, Full Moon or whatever, New Moon, whatever that frigate's called, excuse my language, uh, and this is not usually me to have contempt for a piece of culture like this, um, is, is, I mean, if that's a huge deal, if that's, like, biggest movie opening ever, somebody has to be seeing it, right? I guess dudes are seeing it. I don't know. I mean, maybe dudes like vampires. Maybe that's the trick. Are they maybe gothy? Are, are, just, are the kids very gothy these days? Um, I mean, I guess but, I mean, they like is, the emo. Is it a chicken and the egg thing? Like, are they gothy because of Twilight? You know, the Twilight's become so huge that it's actually sort of led to a goth. I mean, you know, we, we've all seen the South Park episode where the goth kids are just, like, incensed at the Twilight kids for sort of, like, uh, because they are always confused for Twilight kids, which is, like, the last thing on earth they want to be. I mean, I think you can go back to sort of the rise of contemporary emo bands and music as like a contemporaneous trend, right? Um, and as, as sort of like uh, the, the sort of alternative rock, not you know the kind of indie rock that we talk about is not the kind of indie rock that a lot of younger kids will be listening to in the sort of non-mainstream stuff. I mean, even think about things like Fall Out Boy. Think about Pete Wentz. You know, think about what the kids who are in Panic at the Disco look like. You know, like like there's yeah. been a shift in that direction towards sort of glam, like dark glam again. Yeah, I mean, or that or that, that dude who did the horrible pop single from 2012 from American. Well, that Idol. guy looked like that guy looked like a Japanese wax museum guy. Oh, was that was that a, uh, that was the guy from American Idol who was who was not the winner because he was yeah, gay? Yeah, that, that Matthew Liebert or is that him? Yeah, no, yeah Lambert, yeah. Aaron Lambert. Lambert. Yeah, Aaron Lambert. Is that him? Yeah, uh, I, th- I don't know. I don't know. I don't know either. To, that's all. 
Google somebody has to Fury. forensically Google this thing. Like, oh, let's go to Google 2012 pop single. So people, <laughs> so, I mean, so people are Actually, going to it, right? Like the um, right. Uh, you know, I don't know. Uh, I don't know the. Uh, like the Disney Channel seems to have been banking on the young female audience a lot, right? And this is—I mean—I think that the the um, it's one of the it's one of the more interesting kind of marketing stories of our you know contemporary world is the the sort of rise in importance of of uh, young teenagers, young teenage girls as uh, as consumers or even preteen girls. I mean, I think you can trace that even people were talking about that back when Britney Spears and Christina Aguilera were the big acts. Right. That as 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 music technology evolved, the latest adopters, like the very last adopters across the population were like girls aged like what, like 10 to 15. You know, those were the last people to be going on Kazaa. Like those were the last people to be downloading music illegally. Um, and so like they took up like the lion's share of the music sales for a while. Right. Yeah. So you still Isn't that you know, sort of a cliche. Isn't that sort of a cliche that in Japan especially, it's the Japanese schoolgirls that are on the cutting edge of technology and fashion and like are the most sought-after consumers in the society? I was not aware. I, I don't – you go I, to JapaneseSchoolgirls.com. Can I get useful news-related economic information if I Google Japanese schoolgirls? Will they teach I, me I about actually, like – I, I, I can't promise what will happen to you if you Google <laughs> Japanese schoolgirls. But I, I believe that I, I, I've been a sort of on-and-again, off-again reader of Wired Magazine for a while. And I believe they used to have a feature called Japanese Schoolgirl Watch. And the idea was that the Japanese schoolgirls, like whatever is cool with them, will be cool in America in about a year Oh, cool. well, I will say this. Actually, I probably shouldn't shouldn't say, but uh, um, I have it on good authority that there's a particular brand that's really deceptively extremely popular in the United States across a wide variety of of uh, of, of um, products. You guys, basically, America does not know how popular Hello Kitty is. Like Hello Kitty is tremendously popular and is a brand that has a great deal of strength, even in the United States. So, in that case, I guess I would go with you on that. Um, and but that's got to be a one-quadrant brand, right? I mean, no, nobody besides young women buys Hello Kitty, right? Maybe old What do you women, mean? Maybe old. What are you talking? You don't have any <laughs> Hello Kitty stuff? <laughs> I mean, nobody besides me and young girls buy. <laughs> it's all over. Yeah. Let me ask you this. Does Hello Kitty have, like, a backstory? Like, if I Wikipedia Hello Kitty, does Hello Kitty, like, do I know where Hello Kitty lives and who Hello Kitty's friends are? Or is Hello Kitty merely, like, a design I think I remember watching a Hello Kitty television show at some point when I was younger. Um, although oh. it looks like her, it looks like it might have not been. I mean, I also watched a He-Man show, and He-Man didn't have a story before he had a show, right? Because the whole story with He-Man is he was a bunch of surplus Conan the Barbarian toys that they couldn't sell to children because the movie right. was too right. Because they thought they thought Conan the Barbarian would be more kid friendly, and it was not kid friendly. Yeah. Which is why all the He-Man characters have the same body, because they were all Conan the Barbarian figures, and they just put different heads on them and painted them different colors. <laughs> so Skeletor and He-Man were both supposed to be Conan the Barbarian, um, but, but they were like, oh, we can make a little plastic skull, and then that'll work better. Um, Hello but, Kitty yeah, and for like house. a dude name For a dude named Skeletor, he's like very uh, – he has excellent musculature. He clearly exactly. works well, out a whole lot. There's a, clearly a big flaw in Skeletor's uh, character design because he is mostly muscle and like very little. <laughs> in his well, bones. he should really just be called like Skeletor, right? Skeletor. I think Skeletor <laughs> might have been taking some performance-enhancing drugs. If like he's primarily a skeleton and yet is like more diesel than uh, than like most Mister Olympia competitors, <laughs> uh, perhaps juicing. <laughs> 
by the power by the power of Balco. <laughs> <laughs> by the power of Balco. Uh, all right. So, um, so did Japanese enemies. What? Sorry, are are you are you Wikipediaing Hello Kitty or, or yes, is this okay, Japanese so, still? So so Hello Kitty a- appeared as a brand on consumer goods in 1974 in Japan and the United States in 1976. The fictional material related to her, like her, the narrativization of her life, like the presence of her friends, the anime shows, don't appear to really get started until 1991. So there's a solid like you know 15 years where Hello Kitty is pretty much just a merchandise brand, um, and but her, her the licensing agreements for Hello Kitty globally are worth about a billion dollars a year. Um, and, and, uh, let's see, she's an official, she has a theme park. She has her own like Disney world. There's like Hello Kitty world called Sanrio Pura land. Um, how can you be, how can you make a theme park about something that's just in a picture? How can you make a, how can you make a movie about pirates of the Caribbean? You make them undead. <laughs> it's an undead, it's an undead Hello Kitty theme park. Yeah, I mean, Matt, you know, Mickey Mouse doesn't have a lot of backstory to him. I mean, where did he grow up? Where did he go to school? I don't think any of the rides at Disney World are based on just Mickey Mouse in the abstract. (laughs) Yeah, he would come. They don't don't have a Steamboat Willie ride, right? (laughs) You don't get to ride. No, that that would would be great if it was all sort of like black and white. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah, Mickey's, Mickey's backstory is that he was minstrelsy, which is why nobody talks about it. Right, is that Mickey was a was like like do 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 whistling out of work, da, 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 living on the Mississippi River, and um, and then and he's all like blackface, and he's fighting other guys who are all blackface, like uh, whatever his name is, the big furry guy was Bruno or something. No, I, I'm not I don't know that that's I don't know that that's in current continuity, Pete. I think they I think they retcon that actually. Yeah. Of, oh, is that is that why they're desperately trying to maintain control of the copyright by like continually advancing the public domain laws because they want to make sure that people. <laughs> well, yeah, but that's also that's also so that you don't have like pornographic Mickey Mouse, you know. Though actually, I'm sure if I Google pornographic Mickey Mouse uh, fan fiction <laughs> right now, I, I, I think this might be closing the porn barn door before after the porn <laughs> horse has left the porn <laughs> state. Ah. <laughs> uh, all right, we should we should we should push on from this because we are uh, okay. We have quadrants. I mean, so wait. A, a good example of a four quadrant movie, I would say, would be Titanic. Right. Yes. Right. Yeah. You, got, you got romance. You got romance for the women, and then you have like action, and it, and then plus, I think the fact that it was James Cameron and he and men like James Cameron that you could advertise it as from the director of like you know Terminator and Aliens, um, and right, then right, men right, right, would right. see it. So that sort of like bought you a quadrant for free right there. Um, yeah, so that exactly. like everybody had a had a good reason to want to go see Titanic, and then also it, it actually did turn out to be good, and like that's what made it just an unstoppable juggernaut. Listen yep. to your friend Billy Zane. Oh yeah. no, he's that's cool. not. That's not Titanic. That's Zoolander. I'm always. That's just good advice for life. That is advice for life. Is always listening to what Billy Zane is saying. Especially, well, don't necessarily watch. Uh, watch what was the not not the shadow. What was the or the, the Phantom? Phantom? Right. Yeah, watch yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, listen to him. <laughs> Well, that has one of my favorite uh, my favorite actresses in it is uh, you know and and you know why she's one of my favorites because she works and her name is Christy Swanson. I love Christy Swanson. Um, <laughs> although I kind of have a huge crush on Christy, Christy Swanson from The Chase. She's the original Buffy the Vampire Slayer, um, yeah, and, she and she she was in uh, The Phantom, right? 
So she's got like. What's up? Yeah, no, no, go on. They're going about. Swanson. Oh no, no, no. Go ahead. I, I wasn't about to go like l- doing an IMDb litany of what Christy Swanson is working on right now, which no, is really not. The most we only do that. About. We only do that for Steven Seagal. Exactly. Exactly. Right. So what were you saying? Again, I want to move on. I want yeah, to go to the I next topic. Wanna, yeah, I don't want to get into some dark territory here, but let me. Uh, <laughs> no, no, Matt, we're done with that. Belinky. <laughs> yeah, no, we did, <laughs> we did that one to death. But okay, so, no, sorry, um, did, did we? Did we? Sorry, did we ever settle whether New Moon is genuinely more than one quadrant, or is it just really? Yeah, that, that's. Deep I, think, I think we're still talking about that. I I would. Uh, well, here this it, is it, New Moon is less <laughs> of of an action movie. Well, actually, I haven't seen the movie. I shouldn't say New Moon. The book is less of an action adventure book than it is than some of the other ones where you know they're racing to escape the bad vampires, right? Like that's that's essentially like the plot of the first book. They're the uh, they're the good vampires and the bad vampires, and the uh, good vampires have to help our our heroine escape. Um, I think it's it's uh, have to escape the bad vampires, and this is like this movie, th- this book anyway. The plot of it is that like her boyfriend leaves her, and she's really bummed for about eighty percent of the book. That's uh, that's how it goes. And then there's some stuff at the end about um, about you they know, go to Italy, right? Yeah, the the uh, vampire headquarters is in Italy, so it's uh, you know it's about that. So you know, it's, uh, guys. According according to Deadline Hollywood, uh, New Moon is a two quadrant movie. Um, so anyway, go ahead. Okay, and what, what what are the two quadrants? Out of curiosity, probably uh, young a women. back back into the left, back into the left. <laughs> <laughs> they say it's female audiences. Um, the audience was exactly split over and under age twenty one. Exit polling showed that eighty percent of the women of the people seeing the movie were women. So um, this, this is were, a statistic were... based on the people who actually did see it. So we're not guessing anymore. No, this is a so statistic. This is... Based on exit polling of audiences, and it sets the quadrant divide at twenty one, not at twenty five. Well, I'm um, sure that's, feel better you know, that's arbitrary. I mean, like, so you know, right? But yeah, I, mean, I think that's surprising me. If I if I had to guess why it was so uh, popular, I would say, wow, they must have gotten the teenage boys to see it anyway, because like I don't know, it has a werewolf in it, and it looks like it might have some cool action, or else they just went with the girls. But I guess that no teenage boys didn't go see it. Uh, no. No, yeah, they did not. It's, honestly, it's a movie about how a girl mopes when her boyfriend dumps her, or at least the the book is about that. Maybe, yeah, like I know, don't think, like don't you think that if men if men are pulled into it, it's the uh, it's the retrograde gender politics of this movie that really attract men, right? Like that, you know, women are monogamous and devoted, whereas men are uh, ravenous. Anyway, um, I don't. I think wait, men no, might wait. just be attracted to a vampire movie if they go see this movie, right? Like. Or or the women who are seeing the movie, or they're gay. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> or they're gay teenage boys. Yeah. Uh, so wait, right. wait. well, I then... just can I ask a question to sort of satiate my own curiosity? No. I'm, I'm never, okay. <laughs> fine. Get it then. <laughs> no. What's your question? I was just. I don't know much about New Moon, and I'm sort of fascinated by it. I, I mean, I guess. Let's make it a, a, a quick two part question. A. Should I read it? I mean, would I be let's say, interested by it? I think not. So you don't think the Twilight <laughs> series is like, you didn't enjoy reading them, or you're you know saying, what, I would... I take so much, I take so much poop from you uh, over okay. Glee 
that I don't want to take any more poop from you. And so <laughs> I, uh, I would never recommend that you read anything ever. In fact, you should stop reading and watching television. As soon as they they air the episode where they go to sectionals, I'm going to send you an email in all caps that's like, you know, why didn't they sing Defying Gravity? They said they would sing Defying Gravity. So that's, yes. All right. I would draw my question in that case. (laughs) (laughs) That goes on the Overthinking It podcast drinking game. When when Blinky bashes Glee, take a drink. (laughs) I don't want to cede my right to do that, so I'll I'll refrain from asking any Twilight-related questions. No, Matt, I I mean, look, anyone, and pretty much anyone of our listenership, if you're interested, I read it because I heard Next Harry Potter, and so I just ordered all the books on Amazon and went through. I like, I like Harry Potter. Well, right, exactly. And this was being billed as like the next kind of crossover child to adult or, you know, young adult to adult uh, smash hit. And, it, you know, I guess financially it's turning into that business-wise it is. So, um, so you know, I went out and, bu- and bought it. And, you know, those the, those books are pretty massive. I think there's like 2,000 pages of Twilight Story saga uh, whether or not it's a saga in the Norse sense of the word. Um, and uh, But, you know, those 2,000 pages you can read in a, you know, law, in a holiday weekend, right? It's not, uh, it's not particularly dense material. And you'd it's, be not, well, it's not plot heavy. It, it, it's not plot heavy, and the, the uh, writing is very stock and sort of very, very cliche. Right, like uh, Harry Potter had certain literary merits. They're not the kind of literary merits that get you included on a on like a college literature syllabus. But it had it had some good stuff that was happening in the actual writing. Not so Twilight, right? Which is which is hackneyed. It reads like a, reads like a uh, journal entries, like bad journal entries, like a Taylor so if- Swift song. So if, if Harry Potter is the crossover children's book adult novel, then is Twilight the crossover children's book romance novel? Like, that's, is that sort of what it aspires to rather than sort of mainstream literature? That, yeah, I mean, I think that that's not, that's not that a bad That makes sense, yeah. That's yeah. not a bad Because romance novels are sell phenomenally well in the aggregate, right? Like, don't, isn't romance, don't romance novel? I mean, I see them yeah, in the Yeah, but there's so many, so. there's so, 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 so yeah. many of them. Yeah, right. Yeah, that is, yeah. It's all balkanized between all the various uh, devil in a kilt type publications there. <laughs> <laughs> to pick to pick a title at random. Yeah, just at, yeah, random. Totally at random. Yeah, not that I own that one. We are right all thing. intimately familiar with. You know what? If you're going to buy Devil in a Kilt, do it from the link that I will include in the show notes. Yeah. On the uh, on the site, so that we at least get the Amazon referral from your morbid curiosity. I actually I don't understand that kind of trashy genre fiction anymore because I get all of that kind of mindless entertainment from TV episodes, you know. And I so I don't want to read detective novels. I watch detective shows, right? Like I I don't want to I I don't want to read um, like Robert B. Parker Spencer novels. I, I want to watch Law and Order. Though I guess Robert B. Parker is supposed to be really good. Uh, but you know, like I feel like romance is one of those things that TV doesn't do well. They, romance is always sort of a secondary element to something else that's going on. You know, you can't have a romance show, can you? 
Well, you not. can have soap operas. Romance shows are soap operas, right? Like that's what I guess, the romance but, but the, novel but the is. is like, because there can never be a conclusion to the soap opera, it's like a romance novel that just drones on and never actually gets to the happy ending. Which, well, I mean, first of all, the romance novel hits a happy ending uh, every 15 pages or so if it's any good. But <laughs> secondly, uh, sorry, that was a little bit uh, uncouth. But yeah, I mean, no, I don't no, know that, that, Oh, I, I, Pete, I, I thought you actually meant in the sense that, you know, a romance novel is is well-paced and, you know, constantly sets up the expectation oh, of success. that's not what he meant at all. Yeah, no, he meant happy well, ending in the sense that sometimes after you get a massage, you have a happy ending. <laughs> oh, you mean like sometimes after you get a massage, you go and soak in the hot tub that's adjacent to the massage parlor, and then you just sink into this really profound state of relaxation? Is that what no, you mean? No, no, he means uh, <laughs> sometimes when a man and a masseuse love each other very much. <laughs> she, the masseuse gives the man a very special kind of handshake. Yes. Right. Oh, call that okay. Like one, like one of those really good good networking handshakes that you're supposed to get when you go on an interview. Is that what you mean? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so <let's>, right. <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm done. It's a very I'm firm done. handshake. <laughs> <Okay>. But uh, <laughs> forgot but, what we and, were. And rather, yeah. I'll go. Rather to your to your point about you know uh, genre fiction and and getting that fix from TV. I've been reading a lot of thriller novels lately, like the sort of crime, thriller, suspense genre. And most of the ones I've found, even if they are rather formulaic, are significantly better than what I would comparably find on TV. I think, I think a lot of that has to do with the, the limited production time that goes into TV. Like a, a burn a, notice? Yeah. Is there a book version of Numbers? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure there is, for, actually. Yeah. By, by way of example, yeah, I'd, I'd say Lee Child, for instance, or Harlan Coben, the novels they write are better, are, they're more thrilling than an episode of Burn Notice. I mean, Burn Notice is good, but how long does it take to write an episode of Burn Notice? It, it can't take more than a couple weeks. Uh, otherwise, the, the economics of, of TV production break down. So that, that has to be a process that takes a couple weeks to write, whereas a novel takes a minimum of months, if not a year or more, and is constantly edited and revised up until the point of publication. I don't know. Matt, Matt wrote a novel. How long did it take you to write your novel, Matt? Uh, what, the one I wrote with Jordan? Yeah. That, that, took, that took like a month. Um, well, but didn't I, you write I two novels? But yeah, you wrote like three, there wanted. were like three versions of it, and the editor kept sending it back. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. And, and we, we had two published. I don't really like to talk about the second one, which involves a fairy and a teenager uh, traveling back in time to stop an alien from enslaving the human race. <laughs> Wait, are you serious? When I say fairy, I mean literally like a magical pixie with like magical was this one also a, Was this one also a college guide? <laughs> no, this was supposed to be for a student studying AP U.S. history. <laughs> What? <laughs> we all have dark pasts, John. <laughs> Matt no, at one point I don't... was pulled into the to see me underbelly of like pseudo academic niche publications, i.e., like what it was. I, I should don't, try, uh, try, yeah. I should... Don't let's not say the name of the publisher. Well, let's just say that there are people who like to go to school and to excel at going at like getting into competitive schools, and they're willing to throw money at all sorts of crazy crap. And one of the things that they're willing to throw money at is novelizations of like utility guidelines for studying for tests and or planning for college admissions. So, uh, and that's what this was. <laughs> uh, 
Okay. <laughs> yeah. I'll, I'll I'm going to do a link later, John. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, talking about the, um, the, the, the sort of TV versus book, there's uh, ABC's doing something interesting right now. I've mentioned before on the show uh, Castle, which is uh, about a mystery writer who hooks up with the police department and helps them solve crimes while he's researching his novels. ABC is now releasing his novels. So there's some ghostwriter who's out there writing novels that are loosely based on the plots of episodes of a television show and turned out as full-size novels, which is going to be – uh, I've picked one of them up. I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but I think it's a really interesting idea, and it's the first time I can think of anything like that happening. Sure. The Ghost Whisperer also, I mean, I think was the show that has kind of taken that – I think it's the success of The Ghost Whisperer that, that makes it possible for other shows to do it, where like in it, Jennifer Love Hewitt – She's in the Ghost Whisperer, right? I think that's the show. I mean, she runs an antique store, and so they sell on the on the website. They've sold for a year or two. The um, uh, oh, Lost did it too. They sell like yeah, antiques, they- like they uh, like she has in her store. And then Lost did the uh, did the novel, did, like Bad Bad Son or so Bad Brother or something like that, Evil Twin. Yeah, I, 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 but, I, that was I, just like the story. I just like to throw in there quickly the life's work of two people named Jessica Fletcher and Donald Bain, um, who, among other things, uh, wrote a wide variety of novelizations based on murder she wrote plot lines and or like further extensions of the murder she wrote storyline back in the Dizay. Um, so, I mean, so yeah, I mean, I think that it wasn't probably done as a way of promoting the show or as a cross promotion, but I mean, I, I think it's probably pretty similar. Right. Um, Th- those those are actual books that you can you know check out of a library. Uh, well, I don't know if they're in the library. <laughs> um, <laughs> they're on. I'm looking at Amazon.com right now. They're most of them are used and new from one cent. Uh, one of them has has gone all the way up to 17 cents, um, which is trick or treachery. Uh, but no, none of them appear to have a market value of like more than a cent. Um, okay. And, so it has uh, been done before, but perhaps not well. Well, I, I feel like there's a there's a there's a sensibility about contemporary integrated media strategy, which this is not part of, right? Which is like we're gonna we want the people who are watching the show to see the book in the bookstore and buy the book, whereas like this is more like you know we we want to publish some books and like hey let's slap Angela Lansbury's face on it and it will make more money. I mean I think that's the right and that's like. It's sort of like you, it's more like merchandising rather than integrated media strategy, which is just more about the conceptualization behind it rather than what you're actually doing, right? Um, although maybe they did, maybe they think, hey, let's put the murder she wrote book out there so people can actually buy it and live the murder she wrote lifestyle, um, which, which just seems kind of silly. But then again, like you know, they can solve crimes. Everyone, everyone had a grandma at some point. <laughs> but yeah, 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 exactly. I like the number of things that are about you know plucky upstarts solving crimes. Mm-hmm. That's one of the things uh, Raymond Chandler commented on many, many years ago in uh, in his his infamous essay, "The Simple Art of Murder." How up until roughly Dashiell Hammett, detective fiction was just somebody other than the police, usually uh, being called in to solve a crime that the police weren't capable of doing. And and Dash Hammett was one of the first serious writers to say, "Hey, you know, sometimes people kill each other because." You know, just by accident and for really seedy reasons. Can I can I clarify one thing that I said before? Um, the murder she wrote books are credited to Jessica Fletcher. Jessica Fletcher is the name of Angela Lansbury's character in Murder She Wrote. Not a real person. Yeah, I thought you knew that, and that was the conversation <laughs> yeah, sorry, we were having. That's what you're getting at, yeah. 
I'm sorry. A- a- Amazon.com credits her as the actual author of the book. <laughs> <laughs> so unless she's real. <laughs> consensus reality. Consensus reality. Amazon made yeah. it so. I'm, I'm confused. Anyway, I got to step back for a second and shake this off. <laughs> Usually I don't let fiction creep into my brain like that. Oh man! All right, so we are starting. Uh, we are starting. Well, there there are a couple of things that we didn't really get to, which like including Oprah's move to uh, to cable. Anyone want to say anything about it? Speaking of a one quadrant show, I mean, I, uh, I don't know that it it really means much besides the fact that maybe she can have more control over what she wants to do. If she sort of calls all the shots, she could probably make more money off of what she does. That like, why wouldn't she move to cable if she could? You know. Well, she's not just moving the production of her show to cable. She's launching her own cable channel, right? Right. Right. But I mean, I guess that's what I'm saying. I'm like, I don't yeah. think it, it really means that Oprah wants to, like, change anything about what she does. It means that she just wants to have more control over it or expand it into, you know, take it to the next level. Do it for 24 hours a day and take much larger chunks of the profits, I would imagine. I guess. I mean, I, I, I heard somebody talking. It's like, oh, she wants to enter politics. This Obama thing has got her jazz that she's going to run for office. But, like, I don't think it means... She'd win in a heartbeat. I know she would. But also, like, I don't... And, and I guess you can't if you have a TV show. Maybe you can if you have a cable network because cable is different than broadcast TV. See, the thing is, would, would, would Oprah really gain any more influence over the lives of human beings if she stopped running a cable network and started becoming a senator? Yeah, that's what Jon Stewart said, is that, like, you know, people are always like, why don't you run for office? He's like, I'm pretty much, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing a lot to influence the public opinion as it is. She's amazingly powerful as is, if we're looking at this from strictly, you know, Machiavellian viewpoints. Uh, so why, why, would she, you know, why would she back down from that? I guess. I mean, why does anyone run for office? You know, it's mysterious to me. It is a good question. Because you want to yeah. get your deck for- renovated. What? Because <laughs> you want you want a new hibachi for your gr- yeah. for your grill up, for your deck in Alaska. Is the reason why. <laughs> hmm. uh, okay. What else? What else? What else? Uh, oh, I think we're gonna have to skip our segment on the Magic the Gathering World Championships, Pete. I'm sorry. Oh no! Oh, so much scandal! So much scandal! Can I? I'll just quickly say that the big drama was that the American, Canadian, and Turkish national teams were all disqualified qualified from the world championships for a variety of different kinds of accusations of fraud and cheating, um, including the chi, uh, champion of the U.S. national t- uh, team and the U.S. national uh, cha- uh, captain U.S. national team and U.S. champion. And it's highly dramatic, but I will allow us to, to, to pass on that. And we'll talk about it some other time. Could you give us 30 seconds on how you cheat at Magic the Gathering? Yeah, it, it, there's a lot of ways. But the way you in use which actual you, magic. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, because this is an interesting, actually interesting reason. So the reason that the, the U.S. national champion was disqualified from the world championships is that he misrepresented the game state fraudulently to his opponent. In that, like, his opponent made a mistake as to how his own card worked. And it is your responsibility to correct your opponent. So if there's a, if there's a effect that is generated by something that is on the board and your opponent 
misses it, and that effect is mandatory, and you don't remind your opponent about it, and you and you do that in order to gain an advantage. In fact, in this case, it wasn't even to gain an advantage. If you do it to deliberately mislead them, like that counts as fraud. That both players, the game is so complicated that both players have a responsibility under the tournament rules to maintain an, a mutual understanding of what is actually happening in the game. So this would be like if I hit, if hit a baseball and it goes foul, right? Um, or like, or if it goes fair and I don't run to first base, right? Um, and and the other the pitcher is supposed to say, "Run to first base, run to first base." It was a fair ball. Like you, you should be aware this is a fair ball. Um, and if they don't do that, then they can get busted for cheating. So you're um, saying that instead of being a sport or competition, Magic the Gathering is in fact a hippie love fest. Uh, I would not describe it as that. I, <laughs> there's, the love is not a word I would use to describe it. Um, I would say that it's sort of like a a broad collaborative endeavor by a great many lonely men. Um, but uh, in that case, it's a hippie love fest, I guess. No, no, I shouldn't say it. be so mean. I don't know. Um, it, it's 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 just the problem with the game is that it's so complicated that it's almost impossible to tell what's going on unless you have a great deal of experience. When when then, did Magic the Gathering get complicated? When did it get complicated? Yeah, I mean, what? I remember it being very easy. You like, you play your card, then you tip it to the side, and then you lose it if the other guy wins. I mean, yeah, the basics of it are very intuitive, but they've they've produced like they've been making it for fifteen years. Every year, they come out with hundreds of new cards that have new interactions with every card that's ever been made. Um, the complexity of the game scales up over time, um, Pete, and you can read about Pete. the difficulties that that has in the design. What? Uh, Pete, you're, you're putting me in a position I never thought I would be in, and I'm, I'm sad this is being documented on the internet, where I'm going to defend Magic the Gathering. So I love Magic the so, Gathering. I, I'm, clear, I'm actually clear, a fairly known so, Sorry, specifically defend it from the charge of being, of being insanely complicated. Uh, my understanding of it is that the complexity in MTG is similar to that in World of Warcraft, Whereas if you're a complete newbie and you're looking at the World of Warcraft, you know, display screen and all the things that are floating up and appearing, your your first reaction would be, oh my god, how the how the heck can anyone play this? There's too much data going on, there's too much stuff to manage, this is just impossible. And yet, World of Warcraft's genius is that it introduces those concepts to you in a very measured and deliberate way. So you don't have to worry about things like the refresh rates on your powers or what have you until you level up to a point where you're selecting them. And the game's like, oh, okay, here are these powers. Here's something you should worry about. I've, yeah. I understand that Magic the Gathering is similar, whereas all you, need to, all you need to know first off is like, okay, here's where my mana comes from. Here's what monsters do. And then as you uncover cards with new powers, then you have to start learning more, but not until then. I think In other words, definitely game, true. Yeah. a game that 13-year-olds can master can't be that complicated, is my point. Yeah, I mean it's 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 intuitive, is what I would say. And now, and of course, the highest level of complexity is going to be found at a place like the World Championships, um, where people are you know milking every advantage and uh, and doing their best to to use everything that they have at their disposal. Where people are playing multiple different formats at the same time. No, you're you're definitely right in that it's easy to learn, but at the same time, there is a point at which the rules get kind of ridiculous. Um, but you know, whatever. Baseball rules are ridiculous too. You know, baseball is insanely complex. American football is ridiculously complex. Um, you know, all the different kinds of ways that you can cross the line of scrimmage illegally and all their different names, you know. Right, but football doesn't have a rule that, like, if the other team forgets how to play football, then, like, the, quarter- the other quarterback has to remind them on the field. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there was a like- game this weekend in which that would have been helpful. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Josh Josh uh, refers to the game, the uh, annual football contest between the Bulldogs of Yale University, where most of the writers on Overthinking It went to school together, and uh, the Crimson of Harvard, uh, mm. in which uh, color. How are we beaten by a color? <laughs> Uh, because uh, we freaking ran it on fourth and twenty from our own ten yard line with three minutes to go in the game and we were ahead. Twenty. It was fourth and twenty two to be exact. Yeah. Right? It was I was it? I can't even bother to. It was the stupidest. Maybe somebody can explain in the comments why they would do this. Unless it was some sort of flubbed snap. It was the dumbest play I have ever seen in my entire life. Wow. <laughs> like on the any only level of football. I can think of is that who on earth would expect us to go for it on fourth and twenty two? It's kind of a bit surprised. And, and to our credit, we did gain 15 yards on the play. Unfortunately, 15 yards was nowhere near enough for a first down. <laughs> the, uh, wow. That's, I mean, I don't know, Pete. Saying that something is the stupidest play you've ever seen, we've all been fans of Yale football for 15 years. And... Uh, Nevertheless, I think that was special this weekend. <laughs> to, name one, to name one play as the stupidest is really like that is a that is quite I a. Uh, well, it was this or blocking uh, blocking the extra point only to then let the ball go so that the other team could pick it up and run it in for a two point conversion and win. Yeah, was yes. the other it's stupid. Although play to be also. fair, that team was then later. Even though that team by winning that. Uh, clinched part of the Ivy League championship, it was the leadership for them for uh, boosters and for illegal recruiting, right? Brown had its, uh, had its championship taken away, I think, that year, um, which they got because of our incompetence. Oh, no, but I felt like that move was accidental. Like, it's not like they went out in the field and were like, hey, I have a great idea. Let's block that kick and not down it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, block the kick and then forget about it. So after, after yesterday's game, I don't necessarily put it past them. That's the, um, true. That's true. Well, we managed to hit everything on the agenda. So let's uh, let's close with this. We are embarking today on over uh, Verhover thinking it week. I suppose it's actually like Fairhaven or something like that, right? Uh, we should probably put a post up on how to pronounce his name. I will get to work on that. Uh, so anyone want to say something introductory for uh, where we will uh, overthink the films, the film oeuvre of Dutch director uh, Paul Verhoeven. And uh, this oeuvre includes uh, RoboCop, Total Recall, um, Starship Troopers, right? Uh, Showgirls, Showgirls. Basic Instinct. One of of the interesting things about him, I think, is that although his movies are sort of solidly entertaining, and I think we can all agree that there's some really classic – you know, just fun movies to watch in his in his uh, body of work. It's a little more controversial to talk about them as being art. You know, and to talk about him as being like an, an artistic director that is deserving of like you know Criterion editions and whatnot. So the question, I mean, is is he just does like he a have fun Criterion editions? I, I don't know if he does, but I mean, I think there is, and I think even even among the overthinking staff, we would split on whether he's just like a fun maker of pop culture or whether he's making serious sort of art pictures that pass as just fun action movies. Serious art pictures, okay. so serious. Okay, uh, Criterion, <laughs> according, according Criterion to- edition of RoboCop. Oh, wow. is available. Yes. Yeah. Yep. 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 Oh, is that what you were about to say? <laughs> half man, half robot. Yeah. Too expensive. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. All over press. 
Did I tell you ever tell you guys about my idea to actually buy a whole bunch of collector's edition DVDs and then like wait a year and see if I can sell them to collectors? I'd be like, let's demonstrate. Let's see if this is actually true. Let's see if like someone actually wants to buy the collector's edition of White Squall. In, in general, I would say that any product of any kind that's labeled a collector's edition is worthless to actual collectors. <laughs> the whole we'll point of right collecting something is like, it has to be something that's surprisingly popular. Yeah. <laughs> Pete, I thought where you were going with that was that the one of the collector's editions of RoboCop just has a very blank gray cover and robocop in and block type so it's just like a uniform gray square so if they were going to buy a bunch of those and make them into a robocop costume which would be awesome <laughs> i'm flattered <laughs> that you thought that that's where i was going with it uh, <laughs> it's like yeah, yeah, it's, a, it's a good idea yeah, it is There's a good idea i think time. that should happen yeah there is but i mean the, the fact remains i don't think any of us on this podcast have seen his the movies he made uh in the netherlands before he came to hollywood but i mean they were widely received as serious uh you know some of the best films ever made in that country uh and i think i think i read something that one of the films he made in the 70s was at the you know just just uh 10 years ago voted the best dutch film of the century by like you know the film critics of that country so um whatever you think of like you know, robocop the fact that like you know he you know he's he's not he's not um you know uh i, I don't know he's he's an interesting guy and it's tough to sort of um figure out how serious he's being when he makes something like starship troopers mm-hmm. well i've always said that so RoboCop serious is the best dutch film of the century robocop <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> due to the liver you know, come on. no I can't do it I can't do the accent <laughs> well what do you oh, you know tell us what you um, what do you uh, think of of uh, Paul Verhoeven I mean there will be ample opportunity this week there, there are many many articles coming to you but if you want to talk to us on the podcast about it you know what to do you can use the contact form on the site you can leave a comment on the show notes you can email podcast at overthinkingit.com or you can call 20 20- Eat log zero one. That's two zero three two eight five six four zero one. And until then, you can visit us on the web. Wait, wait, wait. Until when? Uh, until you write in? No. Uh, what? What does that expression mean? Until the next time we are oh, together. Next yeah. Until next week, uh, you can visit us on the web. Friends, that old clock in the wall tells us it's time to be hitting the old dusty. <laughs> it's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. A beautiful yeah. day. We should uh, have like a little sort of like you know like like. Sad, uh, nostalgic Saturday Night Live wrap-up music type thing. With the, yeah, <laughs> that, that thing in Waltz time they do when they clap. Yeah, that we should definitely do that. Yeah. Uh, it always makes me nostalgic for the last hour and a half. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's uh, like, oh, we had some great times at, you know, 11.45. <laughs> well, uh, we'll have some great times next week. Ah, I'm getting all this, this chat spam on Skype. Uh, but until we do... Uh, why don't you visit us on the web at www.overthinkingit.com, the site where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It probably, it probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. Oh, happy ending. I get it. Oh. <laughs>